You are listening to Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Welcome to Ukraine 242. I am Ursula Rudenberg from Pacifica Network, temporarily standing in for your host, Anne Levine. Today, we focus on Ukraine's relationship with Western Europe and how Ukraine's movement towards Western Europe in the past 20 years has contributed to the war that we witness today. Speaking to us on this topic is Maria Popova, Assistant Professor of Political Science at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. I began our recorded conversation by asking Ms. Popova to tell us about her area of expertise. Here is Ms. Popova. I've been teaching how law and politics in Europe interact and affect each other, how the post-communist countries transitioned away from communism to different kinds of regimes with a particular attention on the issue of the rule of law. Would you say that this process has really a lot to do with what triggered the conflict in Ukraine? Absolutely. What is at the root of this war is the huge divergence between Ukraine and Russia in the last 30 years. They started out as very similar countries, both coming out of the Soviet Union. In fact, both countries were instrumental in disbanding the Soviet Union in 1991. Started as very similar types of countries with similar problems with economic transition, the rise of oligarchs, where different oligarchic clans were clashing with each other. And in fact, that's what drew me to the two countries because they were in many ways very, very similar. So a really good comparison to see how their politics evolves. But since about 2004, when Ukraine had its first popular revolution known as the Orange Revolution, aimed at reducing corruption, increasing democracy, and looking to Europe, Since that revolution was successful in Ukraine, we see an enormous divergence between the two countries in the last now almost 20 years. And the reason this divergence is a root cause of this war is that the more different the two countries became, the angrier Russia got that it is losing Ukraine, which it sees as a part of its empire and sphere of influence. And the more Russia became angry about this and pushed Ukraine in various ways, the more Ukraine realized that it really needs to go to Europe even more in order to get security from Russia. And this kind of dynamic is what led to the current war. Could you describe a little bit where we're actually at at this point in time? Over the last 15 years, Ukraine has gradually made a geopolitical choice that it wants to be a full-fledged member of the European Union, not a neutral country that balances both of these big geopolitical blocks. It wants to be a member of the European Union, participating as a full-fledged member in the common market, also politically participating in Europe, shaping where Europe goes. So where things are is that 
the European Union has also gradually realized that Ukraine belongs in the European Union. So the major step that was taken was taken in June when Ukraine was given candidate status. And what this means is that Ukraine is now recognized by the European Union as a country that will eventually join the European Union like the other post-communist countries that were first recognized as candidates and then went through the process of showing that they're ready for full-fledged membership. They institute legal and political and economic reforms that make it possible for them to be full participants in the EU. Their economies are integrated with the European economy, that their democratic institutions are up to par and there's no doubts about the rule of law and these countries can participate fully in the European Union. Now, Ukraine has made a lot of progress towards meeting these criteria in the last eight years. After 2013, even though it didn't have candidate status, Ukraine knew that that's their ultimate goal, that that's what they're working towards. So they've cooperated closely with the European Union in implementing various types of reforms, decentralizing, for example, their political structure, uh, instituting rule of law reforms, reforming the judiciary, anti-corruption reforms, media market reforms. They've met a lot of these criteria already, but there's now, of course, the added complication of post-war reconstruction that would need to be dealt with. But clearly, Ukraine is on a European path, and now both Ukraine and the European Union accept that as the path for Ukraine in the future. So Ukraine has really said they are now part of Western Europe. Absolutely. Ukraine wants to be in Europe. That's their Mm -hmm. goal, to make sure that they're recognized as such. That's why they're fighting. So if it's okay with you, I'd like it if you could help us understand a little bit about the historical context. You've told me that you were actually in Ukraine when the Euromaidan protests occurred. So maybe could we start there? Yeah, so the protests known as Euromaidan and later on as the Revolution of Dignity started almost exactly nine years ago in late November 2013. And they started as a reaction to the president of Ukraine at the time, Yanukovych, doing an about face at the very last moment and refusing to sign an association agreement with the European Union that had been put in place and was about to be officially signed. That had been negotiated. They were about to sign this agreement, which was going to bring Ukraine not into the EU, but a step closer to the EU than it was before. And a step farther away from Russia then, Exactly. And what happened was that in the run-up to this signing, Putin called Yanukovych to Moscow. And Yanukovych went to Moscow, got a stern talking to from Putin and a promise of some loans and probably other kinds of behind the scenes pressure. He came back and said, well, we're not signing with the European Union after all. And that triggered a protest, which was initially a protest organized by students. So not a huge protest initially, but the students came out, young people came out, and they were chanting, 
Ukraine is Europe, signed that agreement. You know, we have in democracies a lot of protests like this, right? The government makes a decision that you disagree with, you go on the streets and you protest. And that's how it started in Ukraine too. And at that point, Ukraine is a democracy already. You know, it's not the type of autocracy that Russia was also already at that time. Ukraine was a democracy, they started protesting. However, what happened was that the police tried to suppress them very violent because apparently Yanukovych had promised to Putin that he is not going to sign this agreement, so he did not want to budge on this. When the police violently repressed the protest, the protest grew exponentially. They were still about the European Association Agreement, but they also had this added layer to them of we are a democracy and we're not going to stand for the police beating up young protesters. We're not going to stand for the government trying to take away our right to protest peacefully. So this led to huge protests. They occupied the central square. They were protesting around the clock. A lot of people were arrested. A lot of people were beaten up. The protests started calling for the release of the people who were arrested. So eventually, it seemed that Yanukovych had only two choices, either to budge to these protests, because they were enormous, hundreds of thousands of people on the streets of Kiev around the clock asking for a change in policy. But also, at some point after all of this violence against protesters, they started asking for Yanukovych to resign. Maria, were you there in the protests? Yes, I was there in December at a conference. It was really very inspiring because you saw a huge level of self-organization by the protesters, organizing soup kitchens, information tents where people could go and sort of learn about what the association agreement is or learn about who has been arrested and where they are so that they can organize protests in front of detention centers and also a very united sense of why they are protesting. Everybody was saying that the reason they're protesting is that they want Ukraine to be in Europe. And what they meant by this was not a geopolitical choice, not an economic choice. They wanted to live in a country with what they perceived as European values of democracy, a government that's accountable to its people, rule of law where you cannot be arbitrarily detained, freedom of speech, freedom of expression. These were all values that people talked about whoever you asked. Young people, old people, old people usually would say we're fighting because we don't want our kids to live in autocracy like we did. So it was very much an anti-corruption, pro-democracy, pro-rule of law, pro-European values protest. So people were very clear about what they wanted. It's kind of an extraordinary story. Did you get an understanding of what gave the demonstrators the sense that this was something they could fully commit to as much as they did? Why at this time? I think the association agreement was a focal point. It's very easy to understand when the choice is in such stark terms. Do you go with Russia or do you go with Uh the European Union? And it's a stark choice because Russia at that point in 2013 is already 
a highly authoritarian state. The Russian government had suppressed protests violently in 2012. We know that the regime had killed journalists, had waged war in Chechnya and killed thousands of people. And it was impossible to discuss this in Russian media. The media was entirely controlled. Ukrainians all speak Russian. They could watch Russian television. They knew the reality of what life is like in Russia. They also knew what life is like in Europe because a lot of them worked in Europe and they also knew that other post-communist countries had joined the European Union. So they were familiar with democracy versus autocracy and they saw their country in between these two poles and at a crossroads. Mm -hmm. Are we going to take the path to Russia with a pro-Russian president who has just canceled an association agreement with Europe and is going to take us all the way to Russia. He's trying to suppress protest just like they did in Russia. Are we going to accept that? Or are we going to break the back of this regime now before it's too late and go to Europe like we were headed? I mean, it was a very stark choice and very easy to understand for people because they really knew both sides very well a fork in the road. That was in 2014, right? Right. I mean, in some ways, the Orange Revolution in 2004 was a similar fork in the road between pro-Russia and pro-Europe. But in 2004, the divergence between Russia and Ukraine hadn't been so stark. Mm -hmm. But between 2004 and 2013, democracy becomes stronger in Ukraine. And in 2013, they had this memory of protesting in 2004 and winning. You are listening to Ukraine 242. I am Ursula Rudenberg speaking with Maria Popova, Assistant Professor of Political Science at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. She shares with us her knowledge of the history of Ukraine's movement towards Western Europe and how this has contributed to the current invasion of Ukraine. Let's return to the interview. I had heard in the past about corruption and the oligarch control in Ukraine. Was that part of what protests were trying to address? Absolutely. It was a big part of it because the Ukrainian oligarchs were, like in Russia, trying to control politics, obviously enrich themselves unfairly. But the difference between the Ukrainian and the Russian oligarchic system is that in Russia, the oligarchs serve at the pleasure of the president. If he wants to destroy each of them individually, he can. In Ukraine, the oligarchs were more competing for control of the government. So they had the upper hand. And indeed, part of both the Orange Revolution in 2004 and the Euromaidan in 2013, a big motivating factor was Ukrainians wanted to make sure that these oligarchs can turn into normal big businessmen who are going to abide by rule of law with their business in the open. And a lot of progress after 2014 was made in this direction towards controlling the oligarchs, making them accountable, limiting their opportunities for corruption. 
Going back to the Euromaidan demonstrations that started in 2013 and kind of culminated in 2014, the result of that and the, what they call the Revolution of Dignity was that actually the president, Viktor Yanukovych, his government was removed. Why did they succeed? Why weren't the demonstrations just squashed like they could have been? Right. That's a great question. It's a very important one because what happened was that his government crumbled. He fled. He wasn't necessarily overthrown because nobody marched on the presidential administration. What happened was that he signed an agreement with the protesters that they will hold early presidential elections. But instead of moving to honor this, the very night after they signed the agreement, he fled the country. And the reason he fled the country was that it probably became evident to him that the army and the security services were not willing to suppress the protests any further. Uh, And that's why he also felt motivated to sign an agreement with them? He signed the agreement under a lot of pressure. Also, you know, there was international community mediation in this agreement by Europe. So he he signed, but it doesn't seem that he intended to abide by it. So it seems that he fled maybe thinking that he will be able to regroup and come back and suppress. But instead, Parliament convened and went through parliamentary procedure and removed him from office on the basis of the fact that he is not in the country to fulfill his obligations as president. Mm. And in fact, he did appeal to Russia, right? Saying that the new government that was formed in his absence was illegal. Of course, Mm -hmm. of course, he did that. And Russia took this opportunity to invade Crimea and then eastern Ukraine. So really, accurately speaking, the war started in 2014. Because in this power vacuum in February of 2014, when the Ukrainian parliament came up with a new government, in that moment, Russia made this calculation that Ukraine is a very weak state at the brink of collapse, so it can use this opportunity to take some territory from it. And that's what we saw with the covert intervention in Crimea. Russia sent troops without insignia to take over the Crimean state institutions. The Ukrainian state was indeed at that moment weak and couldn't resist in the way that it resisted in 22. That's the difference. But it was still a Russian invasion, very much against international law, very much aiming for the same thing, to control Ukraine. But it was nothing like a majority in Crimea that wanted to live in Russia. This has been a constructed narrative. They started in Crimea, then they opened this front in eastern Ukraine, thinking they're going to go from there and take a lot of territory. We've all heard about Crimea, but also you had these areas in the Donbass, Donetsk and Luhansk, which declared to be separate, but they didn't become Russian. What, what is the right. difference between what happened in Crimea and what happened in the Donbass? The Russian narrative is that there was a huge difference between Crimea and Donbass, and that in Donbass there were local separatists who challenged Kyiv, 
wanted to separate from Ukraine and Russia maybe, maybe not helped them. That's the Russian narrative. In reality, however, what we have in Donbass is very similar to Crimea because there was no separatist movement in Donbass before 2014. People who became the leaders of these statelets they were not known political actors before 2014. The sequence of events is, in fact, Russia goes into Donbass, recruits these local people indeed to be separatists, and then they challenged Kiev and declared independence through referenda. And then there was a lot of fighting because there was nowhere near consensus within Donbass that they would want to go to Russia. So Russia basically opened the conflict in Donbass to challenge the Ukrainian state. Today, when Putin talks about having to invade Ukraine because there's bad people there that are threatening Russian-speaking people in Ukraine, is he essentially referring back to what happened with the revolution of dignity and the change of the government? In some ways, yes, but it's deeper than that. Putin calling the government in Ukraine a neo-Nazi junta and all of that comes from his deep belief that there is no such thing as a Ukrainian identity that is separate from a Russian identity. So what he believes is that if you identify with the Ukrainian nation, you are by definition anti-Russian and Nazi. So there is no space in Putin's way of thinking for an independent Ukrainian nation that is separate from Russia and not hostile. To him, the very essence of Ukrainianness is anti-Russianness. So it's not about what the government is doing, really. The fact that they're trying to assert a Ukrainian identity to him is anti-Russian already mm -hmm. and fascist. It's rooted in his refusal to accept that Ukraine could be moving away from Russia. And that's why he has to explain this within his worldview. He has to explain this movement away from Russia as a Western plot to steal Ukraine from Russia because he sees no agency for the Ukrainians themselves. Mm -hmm. He cannot think that that's what Ukrainians want to do. He thinks, well, Europe is brainwashing them and stealing them from us. Russia cannot come to terms with this different choice that Ukraine is making. It's as if how the world works is frozen in the Second World War, even before that. The idea that countries are entitled to control their neighbors through power is still there in Russia. The idea that Ukraine needs to continue to be part of the Russian world because it has been for a long time. And also what Russia really cannot accept right now is that European allies are helping Ukraine because of shared values of democracy and self-determination rather than because they want to control Ukraine themselves. For example, you see Russian propaganda constantly claiming that Poland is about to invade Ukraine and take the western part of Ukraine. 
Now, to a European observer, this is an absurd scenario. But that's a proposition that you regularly hear on Russian TV. So Russia is kind of still living in the age of empires and actually assuming that other countries are too, but are being duplicitous about it. Obviously, the United States is involved, but this is at heart a European conflict. Well, it is, of course, a conflict that is above everything else, rooted in the Russian and Ukrainian history and the changed understanding of Ukrainians about who they are and how this conflict is resolved will be crucial to European security. Because if Russia wins even a partial victory in Ukraine, aggression and nuclear blackmail achieve results, it can continue on its journey to try to recreate the Russian Empire. He will then regroup, try to get all of Ukraine eventually. Moldova is under threat. Georgia, of course, has been invaded too. So this is very much a European problem in the sense that Europe will have to deal with it. The U.S. is, of course, involved, but the U.S. doesn't need to control Ukraine. In fact, what we saw in the first days after the war started was that Ukraine had to advocate for itself, had to beg for weapons and for military aid. The military aid did not come readily. It came after Ukraine managed to make a case for itself that it does want to remain an independent country and it wants help. So I think the people who make the proxy war argument, they have it backwards. It's not that the U.S. somehow, you know, goaded Ukraine into challenging Russia. It's Ukraine that managed to convince the U.S. against all odds, I might add, because there was a lot of resistance to it in, uh, initially. Ukraine managed to convince the U.S. that it is worth helping because it is determined to withstand this aggression by Russia and it is determined to remain an independent country and continue moving towards Europe. End this conversation. Can you give lessons learned from this conflict in terms of relations in the future between Europe and Russia? I, th I think there are two lessons to be learned. The first one is Russia doesn't tolerate buffer zones. So I think one lesson we've learned from this war is that Ukraine cannot remain neutral. After this war is over, a message has to be sent clearly that Ukraine is now part of the West. And the second lesson learned is that Russia's authoritarianism cannot be moderated through engagement. It's clear that Russia does not want to be a partner with the West. So I think the 10 months of war make it clear that Russia is now an adversary that has to be contained until domestic change in Russia changes the Russian regime. We would just have to wait for Russian society to somehow make this change itself. Okay, thank you so much for all of this information. Your final thoughts before we end? I think for sure Europe is going through a fundamental rethink right now. 
it's really important for Europe to stay the course in supporting Ukraine because right now Ukraine is fighting not just for itself but for all of Europe. In some ways, it is a lot clearer, a lot less complicated than other wars. Polls within Ukraine show that after 10 months of war, their support of fighting to victory is higher than in the beginning, and it's now 85 to 90 percent. It really is absolutely remarkable, but what it shows you is how existential it is for them. It's really not an option that they want to consider living under Russian occupation. Maria, thank you so much. Good talking to you. Yeah, bye-bye. You've been listening to Ukraine 242. I've been your host for today, Ursula Rudenberg from Pacifica Network. Many thanks to Maria Popova, Assistant Professor of Political Science at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. Ms. Popova is author of the book Politicized Justice in Emergency Democracies, a study of courts in Russia and Ukraine. Until next time on Ukraine 242, I thank you for listening.